Hey guys, this is Lauren, and in episode 12, we are chatting with New York Times bestselling author, Seanan McGuire. We delve deep into what it's like mentally damaging your favorite characters, the nuance of family and how we define it, and lots, lots more as we talk about the 12th book in her October Day series, Night and Silence. This is the Ink Feather Podcast. But before we go on, I want to share with our new listeners my Etsy store, LZ Studios Imagery. I have lots of author swag there from my Beyond Words charity author calendars, and it's a great place to snag a signed print of a favorite fantasy author and other goodies like bookmarks and postcards. So you can check them out as well as other fun images there in the Etsy store, and it's LZ Studios Imagery. Now, on to the interview. Hi, Shannon. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. I am a big fan of the series. I know a lot of people are, and I'm really excited that we were able to snag some time to chat about book 12. Can you believe you're at book 12 of the series already? It's a little terrifying. Um, you know, I spent so long waiting for book eight that now that we're past that, I, I just kind of go, that can't be right. And I saw when you wrote about getting signed for up through book 13 and it's just like oh my god there's even more I get to do more and how exciting that was it's always exciting like I don't I don't think it will ever not be exciting to be able to continue and if it is that's probably going to be a good strong sign that I should stop <laughs> that makes sense okay so let's just dive into this book on uh, night in silence it's 12th October day book do you want to give us a quick summary um, for those who maybe haven't read it and kind of so we can at least have a, a touch base at a ground point? Um, the October Day series is to basically holds that all fairy folklore is to the reality, quote unquote, of fairy as Xena warrior princess is to the reality of ancient Greece. This is the 12th book of October <laughs> Day uh, running around trying not to commit treason which is basically her hobby at this point in the series <laughs> and I am really really pleased with this book and really kind of frustrating my publicist because I keep telling people that if you're not caught up to this point in the series uh, please don't read it you know I find that I at least when I read when I read books completely out of order I frequently wind up disliking a series that could have been super important to me uh, so if the book looks interesting or sounds interesting uh, check out book one you know, or or go back to where you left off and go. If the book, if the series has continued to book twelve, clearly I um, I should give it a second chance. But in in book twelve, Toby is trying to have a normal day and failing utterly because that is basically Toby's hobby is failing utterly. <laughs> um, if you have been following the series, this is where we start answering some of the questions that have sort of been with us since book one. You know, like what are we eventually going to do about? certain characters and who are certain people's parents and other things that are super vague. I swear I'm, I'm not this vague. I just try not to spoil people. It's worth it. I have, when I, about halfway through the book, you get a really nice big spoiler that I think readers and fans of the series are going to love. And it was totally, it was totally worth it having no idea going in. So I completely concur with that. But I want to um, kind of dive in to some some broad ideas that you touch on in this book and in the series in general, but really in this book specifically. In the end of the last book, two of our kind of major side characters, one in particular who more major than the other, uh, had some psychological damage done to them. Um, yeah. They were really 
kind of tormented in the previous book and now they're dealing with the repercussions in this in this book and in book 12 and I guess I want to just talk about dealing with like psychological damage because throughout the series people are getting the crap beat out of them in various ways all the time but this yeah. was kind of a completely different level of of trauma and I want to know maybe as as because you're familiar and you love these characters, you've invested in these characters, how that was to kind of go there mentally and, and have them struggle like this. I, I actually had to call my editor when I wrote the previous book and go, um, hey, I sort of just postponed the wedding by a volume because at the end of that book, it was it was not on the table. I tell people that the series is plotted like a good trip to Disneyland. For me, at least a really good trip to Disneyland. We kind of have the things we know we're going to do. We have our dining reservations so that we can be content that we're going to get to eat. Uh, we have the rides that we always go on. But other than that, we try to leave things open and sort of follow them to see where they will take us. Mm. And that means that some of the damage that I did in the previous book was less planned and more, oh, if I do this thing that I have decided I need to do, uh, these are the consequences I'm going to have to live with. Is this really a thing I want to do? Yeah, yeah, it kind of is. Okay, so you're going to have to deal with this. Uh, which hurt. It hurts to take your imaginary friends and, and put them through the ringer sometimes. Yeah. But it was also kind of a good thing in a weird way. Because we take so many shapes from fiction. You know, even when we're not thinking about it, we look at fiction and it tells us this is normal or this is okay. Um, and in the previous book, we actually took some of our characters who are known for being self-sufficient, trying to take care of themselves and took them to the point of needing to say to the people who love them, I can't do this. I need help. And um, much as it did honestly pain me to hurt these people who don't exist, it helped a lot to realize there may be people who actually do exist yeah. who find it a little easier to say, I need help after they've seen fictional people they care about do it. And, and that's human nature. That's not me going, oh, look how important I am. That is literally we learn how to people from the stories we tell. Yeah, it was just interesting to see this whole different level within these characters who, like you said, are very strong and have been very pretty self-sufficient in a lot of ways, especially emotionally in regards to how this damage affected them. So, yeah, it was a, a very different experience reading this book and, and like going a little deeper with these guys. Was that I mean, was that fun? Are you like you said, you're kind of glad you went there. But was it at the end? Are you really like are you feeling satisfied that it was a really where you wanted it to get to? It was definitely the right decision. Uh, you can't you can't do the kind of things I did to them in the previous volume and then just go, oh, I, I decided that the consequences were boring. Like, that's not fair to the characters. Yeah. I, I know they don't exist. I'm not, oh, my precious babies, they talk to me. But I do feel kind of like if I'm going to make these people up and send them out to be important to people who aren't me, I have a responsibility to treat them right not kindly but right and the right thing to do for them was to acknowledge i put you through hell i'm really sorry here's a cookie and a therapist i mean as a reader it was very 
I don't want to say enjoyable because kind of like what you're saying, it was like, I, I care for these creatures, these people. Um, I'm definitely invested in these characters. So to see them struggling and to see those who love them struggling, the whole thing was was hard to read because I was like, oh, this sucks. I hope every, what's going to happen and how are they going to, everyone's going to deal. So um, yeah, it definitely added a whole other level to the the story. I, I really, I'm just curious about the the underlying, I, I don't want to say message, but like how you are able to get such a strong focus on family all the time, whether it's the family you make or the family that's yours, it's always very prevalent in the books. I mean, that is one of the things that I, I focus on a lot. I did not have, uh, I think all writers use their books to a certain degree as therapy. And we just hope that other people have the same damage we do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I did not have the most stable family life growing up. Uh, I actually left home when I was uh, 14. And I survived because people who were not related to me, who didn't have anything to gain by doing this, stepped up and said, we're not going to let her fall. We're, we're going, we care about this kid. We're going to make sure she has a place to be. And I have, I have reconciled with my biological family uh, to a certain degree. You know, my mother lives with me now, which is very strange for both of us. <laughs> but there's still a lot to work through. And I I do still to this day strongly dislike this idea that we have culturally that the family that you share blood with is more important than the families you build yourself. And you always have to forgive family. Well, why is it? Cause you might need a kidney one day. Cause I promise you there are other ways to get a kidney. And, and so it is sort of this exploration of what does make a family. Are you family because you're related or are you family because you care? I think that we really ought to put more, focus on the because you care. And so dealing with, with Toby as she kind of heals and learns how to assess what family is and not break herself trying to please her mother has been a, a long, slow process of the series, uh, which is, you know, ironically very much about your family debts and what you have to pay, whether you incurred them or not. Yes. So Yeah, I just, I don't know. I felt it very strongly more so than I think in any of the other books. I really just felt this the tendrils of, of connection between family and how she defines family. And I thought it was a really um, strong and interesting part of, of the storyline. Thank you. That is part of what I've been working toward, but it can be really hard to tell when you succeed, you know, because also people, what people will find believable is partially influenced, if not entirely influenced by their own families. When I wrote the first couple Toby books, I still really wasn't talking to my biological family at all. And you, you should never argue with reviewers. I always say that there are only three completely universal pieces of writing advice, and that's read, write, and don't argue with reviewers. <laughs> but I got several reviews on the first Toby book that made me want to argue with reviewers, even though you shouldn't, because it was people saying, oh, Toby's relationship with her daughter is completely unrealistic. Uh, because when Jillian in book one says, I don't want to see you, you ran out on me for 14 years. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Uh, Toby respects that and and says, OK. And so I got folks going, oh, no, it's no daughter would do that. That's unrealistic. And I'm like, mm, that is exactly what I did. Well, yeah, I was imagine like I would be that way, too. It'd be like, uh, it's not all roses and butterflies here because you're just back. Right. And it's, it, you know, obviously your own influence with family is going to affect how you read families. 
But it bothered me when people said, oh, this is the thing that's unrealistic in this book about magic using fairies in San Francisco (laughs) uh, is the specific family dynamics of those magic using fairies. Like, Uh, you know, sentient cats are are completely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's fascinating. That's the thing. People get fixated on weird stuff. But again, you're right. You, You had to like define her family dynamic and carry it through and yeah it's been a really great evolution and it's been really fun to see her almost have to reflect and go oh crap I have these people that matter to me and I matter to them and they there's a responsibility there yeah I have to say my my personal favorite is Quentin he's he's the man I love this dude he's like the coolest her her squire he's just for those of you listening he's just this rad character who's got her back and is a teenager and does teenager things too but is also just this the kind of friend you want in your life. And so I think he's, and he's pretty. So that makes him He's nice. pretty. And he just wants Toby to like chill for five minutes. I know. That is, that is literally all he wants for Christmas is please. Could you get some chill? She is not going to get any chill. It's been this long. It's, you know, she's not going to change. <laughs> kind of touching on that a little bit too. How are you able to keep the characters feeling fresh? When you sit down, are they just such good familiar friends that you just know who they are and go with it? Or do you have to like introduce, do you feel like, okay, I need to shake this up a bit? Um, For the most part, I just, tr- again, I am not saying they are real people. I, I know I've been qualifying this a lot but I actually had someone yell at me for this recently so I feel very qualifying what do you mean yell at you because you thought they thought you thought they were people because clearly I thought that my characters were real people and was encouraging young writers to have issues I'm like well uh I took a lot of drama classes and you learn to create a character you know and make them feel real and that I do think helps me as a writer that that I did spend so much time going how do you inhabit a character. But with these guys, you know, I let them change. I figure out what they did between books and I kind of interrogate them a little bit. What have you been up to? What have you been doing? We've had six months between books. We've had six weeks between books. We've had whatever. Uh, What's been keeping your time? So I've just started writing book 13 because there is no rest for the wicked. And there's a bit at the beginning where kind of the teenage squad is playing Overwatch and, and complaining because Raj's reflexes are too good to let him play Tracer. And that's a part of how they stay feeling fresh is that I don't go, okay, status quo is God. Status quo is not God. Status quo is not necessarily invited to our party. It does make it harder for people to jump on with book 12 yeah. than in a series where everything stays essentially the same. Um, and I, I know that that's a thing I've discussed with my publisher and that's kind of a sacrifice I have made to write the series I want to write is that, okay, you're not going to pick up readers with every new book because they're going to pick up the book and be baffled. Yeah. But then you love them so much by that point that they're loyal readers, man. People love that shit because it's so good and you know, these people. Yeah. And that is honestly how we sustain is, is the loyal readers. I'm so very grateful because I want to get to the end of this story so bad. Do you have a book number endpoint? No. You just have an idea of how you want things to end. I yeah, I know where the ending is. I, I joke, but it's not really a joke that we are always two books away from the ending. Uh, because if my publisher said tomorrow, you know what, these books aren't selling as well as they used to. We think that it's time that you did something different. I could get from where I am standing right now to the ending in two books. 
but it would kind of be the equivalent of missing your exit on the freeway and having to cut across six lanes of traffic in a real hurry. Gotcha. I want to avoid it if I possibly can. I am moving us toward the ending, but right now I have the kind of luxury to stop and explore things that interest me or things that are, again, natural consequences. You know, I had to delay the wedding a book. A little bit of, of spoilery thing for folks that have been here for a while. In book five, Toby's then boyfriend died. And that was very sad and depressed her a lot for quite some time. And we, she does have clinical depression. She's written that way on purpose. So we spent a book where Toby was just sad. Yeah. And everyone was kind of really panicky because Toby, when she is sad, makes even worse decisions than Toby when she is happy. And Toby, when she is happy, is not king of the Good Decisions Club. So he didn't originally die. When I turned in the first draft, I didn't kill him. I was just going to have them break up and have him leave. And the feedback from my editors, and this is one of those things where I'm still not sure who was right, but I did it, so now we live with it. The feedback from my editors was that he needed to die. The story felt incomplete if he just left after everything that they had been through. So prior to that, prior to the editorial you need to kill him, you know, he and Toby broke up and it was kind of amicable and we just moved on. Well, now he's dead and Toby's sad. So I need a book to get Toby happy again. What will make Toby happy? Treason will make Toby happy. <laughs> so there's an entire plot that wound up taking, I think, three books all told, dealing with Goblin Fruit, which is this nasty fey narcotic that wouldn't have happened if my editors had not stepped in and pushed me into kind of a, well, crud, what happens now situation. And that sort of thing means I don't really have a stable book count because if I say, oh, it's this many, uh, the next thing I know, we've got another war on fairy drugs coming out of nowhere. Wow. That's actually really interesting because that's, I thought that was an excellent and interesting plot point and it's and how you how complex it was and all of the different, like you said, tentacles that reached out through those multiple books. Mm -hmm. Wow, that actually feeds into a question that I got online for you. And it's, it's kind of a, you know, a standard good vague question, but kind of kind of what you were saying leads into it. It's from Kelsey A. And she just wanted to know about your plotting for such a massive complex story. She's like, do you have post-its on the wall? Is it all in your head? I'm guessing you have the broad strokes from what you just said, but you have to be able to will uh, be willing to let them kind of go with it. Yeah, I, I have a wiki. I have a private wiki. And again, it's, it's like planning a day at Disneyland. Uh, when I go to Disneyland, I know I'm going to eat at the French market. I know I'm going to ride the Haunted Mansion. I know I'm going to ride Big Thunder. I can give you the big points of my day before I set foot in the park. Yeah. But everything else is kind of up to the winds of fate. We're just going to follow it. The main plot is extremely complicated. The main plot is extremely precise. My greatest fear, and I, I've had literal nightmares about this, I have woken up just in a cold sweat, is that someone is going to catch me cheating. They're going to read a book and go, aha, but in this book, you said that the situation was absolutely this, and now you're saying it's that, and that means you're wrong. Because I, I want to do a good job for the people that are reading, I want to put together a mystery that can be solved. And uh, so the, those points are always so carefully considered, even things as small as the Lushok cannot lie. 
So before a book sees print, I check her dialogue five or six times to make sure this is something I'm okay being locked into. Because once she's said it in print, that's it. We're done. You have to, you have to stick to it. I have to stick to it. I don't have a choice. Now, obviously, she doesn't see the future, so she can accidentally lie, but that's different. Yeah, that makes sense. She cannot intentionally deceive. So, you know, I I know the big points. You were talking about there's a, a great reveal in this book, and I was so excited when I finally got to write that reveal. I've been waiting for it since the very beginning. Oh, my gosh. It's so great. And that's literally was my next question. I'm like, you need to, we need to talk about how you planned that plot twist because you're just like, wait, what? It's been there all along. If you go back and reread the whole series, you can see the pieces moving toward it. Hmm. It's like the plot twist that we had in book eight. Uh, I try to make the big this recontextualizes everything plot twists as rare as possible because I don't want them to get to, to seem cheap. But the ones that you hit, they've always been there. You know, I'll bring in small things. Uh, and when I say small things, that can be a three book plot. Uh, I'll bring in small things kind of spontaneously. But the big stuff that takes six and seven and eight books to set up that has been there from the beginning. That's been very carefully placed and plotted. And it'll be really fun to go back and read now because you know, as I've been going through, I never saw this coming. But now looking back, I'm like, maybe I should have, but no, I didn't. And I'm so I was completely blindsided. It's guys, you're gonna love it. If you're a fan of the series, it's you're literally just like, like wait, what? It's so good. But I actually I go and check TV tropes periodically because they have the wild mass guessing page. And if no one has gotten it on Wild Mass Guessing, I will sometimes put in a slightly broader hint in the next book or two. Gotcha. Just to avoid the cheating. So thank you, TV Tropes. <laughs> you're super helpful. I would be like, hee hee hee, because you're like, it's time to reveal the thing, you know? Mary Robinette Kowal, who does the audiobooks. Yes, we interviewed her a couple episodes ago, and we talked mainly about her narrating your books. She did Tibbled for us. It was great. <laughs> oh, that's magical. Um, but, you know, she calls me to check pronunciations and stuff yeah and that is frequently fun because the pronunciations in some cases are intentionally wrong like i know that sounds very cover your ass but these are the anglicized what are the american fae calling themselves so like i'll consult with my brother in boston and just go hey how would you pronounce this um on some stuff and then that's the pronunciation i feed to poor mary but but i actually texted her uh when i finally got to write that reveal and was like mary 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 guess what you get to do in the next book she's like oh my god finally <laughs> i think part of the joy of reading a long series like this is to be able to constantly go oh remember that thing that happened four five six books ago remember this character that seemed like a minor side character well guess what everything you thought was wrong and that's great because it's like you've had those in there the whole time and it's it, it adds so much more depth to the stories and makes it really fun again to even reread going oh there it is like see it now you know or whatever yeah it increases the rereadability when you can look at it after it's been recontextualized at least it does for me and i i write with the assumption that i'm reading these books in another dimension what do you mean that if I if someone were to somehow take these books to a parallel dimension where a different version of me who's like an accountant lives, she would be ecstatic to read these books. Got you. This book is excellent. I am just uh, I really enjoyed it. even even how you started it out. You started it out with <laughs> them catching 
basically like flying pig creatures. <laughs> Arkansas, they are a Welsh, a Welsh beastie, and they are good luck in some traditions and terrible luck in other traditions and uh, digging up your garden in most traditions. I mean, do you just have like a massive list of really cool animal creature things that you just like, oh, I want to throw this one in now? Well, I majored in folklore. That's actually why I decided that I had to write a series about British type fae living in America was to justify all that time <laughs> I spent in college. And so I have a horrifyingly large private folklore library. Like there are schools that are not as well equipped to wow. teach you about the folklore of the British Isles as my living room. And so I just go through the books. I'm like, well, I need a monster. I need it from one of these areas. What haven't I done? What sounds fun? What doesn't come with inappropriate connections? You know, so some of the folklore books will suddenly start talking about another culture's gods in the same context as this one culture's hidden people. And I'm like, well, that's that's not cool. Uh, your gods are not my monsters. Mm. I should play with them that way. But, uh, you know, you can go through the book and, and find lots of things. I do have lists. Uh, I keep more lists for my encrypted series because that is cryptids from folklore and mythology all over the world. Uh, so I yeah. sometimes need to go a little bit further afield with my research than I do uh, in the Toby series. But they are, they're just a joy. Like, what do we have today? We have flying pigs. You do, you do a really good job with, you know, comic relief balance. It just made Thank me you. chuckle. I'm like laughing because even it comes up later in the story where they just she starts laughing and is like, yeah, pigs are flying, you know, and they're like, it gets hilarious. It's what we get to deal with now. It's really great. So you said you're, you're delving into book 13 right now and you also have your encrypted series and then you finished up your Wayward Children trilogy, correct? Uh, no, it's not a trilogy. Um, so book four will be coming out uh, in January. And then I've actually already ready, written book five because wow. I don't sleep. I just sort of chew through a rolling list of what do you write next and pop around. Yeah, then complain. Well, it's it's mostly set by due dates uh, with a certain amount of I want to move between series because staying in just one world is emotionally exhausting. That makes sense. Uh, I needed that break between the book where I put everyone through the ringer and the book where I started putting them back together again. Like you, you can't just do that without taking a breath. So by release, by release dates and thus due dates, generally I write a Toby book. I do the full editorial on the Toby book. I turn it in. And while I'm waiting for my editor at DAW to get back to me, I start working on the next encrypted book. And that just, it's a wheel. It goes forever. It's a wheel I like a lot. I'm not complaining about my wheel. Well, and you've created three very distinct, strong worlds and different escapes for you as a creator so you can kind of get like you're saying getting a break from this world while you go deal with this one yeah it, it's very re it's restful it recharges my batteries because by the time I finish a Toby book I'm thinking oh man encrypted's gonna be so much fun after this and then by the time I finish an encrypted book I'm like oh I can't wait to get back to hurting Toby poor Toby she takes it well you know she really does <laughs> she takes it as well as she can because she doesn't really see a choice but <sighs> Interviewers like asking, um, it, it's almost one of the standard genre interviewer questions. If you could meet your characters for a day, if they could be real for a day, what would you do? And I'm like, run? 
You! It's all your fault! Toby, because Toby takes it well, Toby probably wouldn't hurt me. She'd just stand there looking disappointed. Tybalt, they would never find my body. <laughs> yeah, that's accurate. And he would just, you know, be have given on answer with his sneer and be <laughs> done with it. Cats, man. So, are, have you read anything good lately? Oh my gosh. Have you read Becky Chambers' The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet? No. It's so good. Oh, I was so... It, it, it is the first of her Commonwealth books. There were three of them out so far. Uh, the other two are A Closed in Common Orbit and Records of a Spaceborn Few. They are virtually perfect. Like, they are books that I put into that very rare category of I'm kind of angry that you wrote these before I could because <laughs> I want to be responsible for this. Oh, wow. They're just so, so lovely. I cannot really recommend, especially the first one, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, enough. I've lost two copies because people keep stealing them from me, uh, which I think is the greatest compliment a book can receive. Agreed. Also, if you are into the Cthulhu mythos, but you're not actually into H.P. Lovecraft, who was the topic of multiple podcasts all by himself, yes. but was kind of a racist jerk. Ruthanna Emery's has is writing what she calls the Innsmouth Legacy. There are two books out so far, Winter Tide and Deep Roots. They are the queer feminist Lovecraftian retelling that we deserve. Wow, that sounds amazing. Oh, they're so good. I actually had to, to do a thing I don't do very often when I was reading Winter Tide and put it down several times to just walk around the room and think about what I had read before I could stand to continue on. Deep Roots is beautiful. It doesn't have the same raw newness that Winter Tide did, which is why I sound a little less enthusiastic. Like Winter Tide blew my socks off. Deep Roots made me really, really happy, but it wasn't introducing all of these concepts I hadn't really stopped to think about. Gotcha. I, I can't really recommend either of those series highly enough. Uh, it is it is kind of a crime that more people aren't reading them. And if enough people read Winter Tide, I'm pretty sure we'll get to prove whether or not life after death exists. Because H.P. Lovecraft's ghost will drag its racist ass out of the grave to yell at us. And that will be amazing. Oh, oh my like, God. so good. I love that that's, it's kind of like the anti-Lovecraft dealing with Lovecraft characters ideas, you know, like yeah. that's really great. Thank you for those recommendations. I, especially cause you are so jazzed. It's always cool to be like, Oh my God, Holy crap. You must pick this book up. I think authors give the best recommendations cause it's your, it's your trade. You know, you're, you're immersed in it. You know, you know what you feel a connection with. Like I, I sometimes kind of wish I had a time machine. Cause when I was a kid, I had no taste and no money. And now that I'm an adult, I, I'm a working writer. I still don't have much money, but I can afford to buy books, which was not always the case when I was a child. And now I have standards and it sucks. Because you can't just go and buy anything? Yeah. Like, honestly, if, if you could go back in time and hand 10-year-old me a $200 gift certificate to the local bookstore, like, after she stopped hyperventilating, she would just buy $200 worth of books and be perfectly happy. It, it wouldn't matter what they were. They would be books that she could take home. Gotcha. And now if you hand me $200 and go, buy some books. I will wander through the bookstore for like an hour. And if I'm lucky, I'll come out with two because I have standards now and it's not fair. 
I mean, that's also a pleasure at the same time because you know that you're going to connect with a story that you really love. So I think I feel more now as a reader than I did as a child, obviously. So before we go, is there anything you want to tell us about in the Encrypted series or the Wayward Children series? Anything for fans of those series? Because we have a lot of cross questions. Well, Encrypted, uh, we have another Antimony book coming out in March, which is called That Ain't Witchcraft. Okay. My, my PA is so happy because she's the one that lobbied for that title it's another dire straits quote and then after that we are going to be doing two books from sarah's point of view called uh, imaginary numbers and calculated risks and i am going to lose my tiny mind because it's going to be like a huge challenge for me as a writer because sarah is a cuckoo which means she is not actually a human person. She is a person, but she is a hyper-evolved telepathic wasp that just happens to look like a human person. And uh, cuckoos are all propagnasic. She does not see facial features the way that humans do because she's telepathic. She's never needed to be able to see facial features the way that humans do. And I'm, I'm going to write two books from her point of view. Wow. If you go through a book and you look you'll see that a lot of the time it's like, oh, he looked curious. He looked confused. Sarah has none of that. Sarah is going to force me to come up with so many new ways of delivering information. I will be a better writer on the other side of her books, but I will be a writer who has drunk a lot more alcohol. I mean, it could be a fun challenge. Maybe that's what you need to do is just like... <laughs> yeah, it, it's going to be a great challenge. I'm actually super excited by it, but I'm I'm kind of going, oh, 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 there is literally no one I can blame for this but me. But what a cool experience and what an unusual point of view to be able to express. Yeah, I'm really excited. I, I genuinely am. Please don't take my... Um, well, it's still a, a daunting challenge. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely going to be a challenge. And so those are going to be a lot of fun. I'm really, really excited. And then in Wayward Children, uh, the next book of those will be out in January. That's called In an Absent Dream. Um, we've got at least two more after that. I love the Wayward Children books. They are just a delightful apology to myself for children's literature because again a lot of the time my first reader is me I'm writing the books that I wanted to have I was a weird geeky queer kid growing up in suburban America I didn't see people who looked like me in books basically at all and so being able to write those stories and to listen when other people say, I don't get to see myself in books and respond with, well, okay, let's see how quickly I can get you into one mm. is really, there's so much luck involved in my profession. You know, for every hundred people who says I'm going to be a novelist, one of them finishes a book. Yeah. For every hundred people who finishes a book, one of them manages to get it printed. I, I am aware that I won some cosmic lotteries that I may or may not have done anything to deserve winning. And so I try really hard to kind of keep the privilege of that in my mind. The fact that I do get to do this is a blessing. It is the universe saying, okay, show me what you got, kid. And part of that for me is going, okay, well, 
what I got is a way for more people to learn how to empathize with people that don't look exactly like them. What I got is there are 20 million stories centered on the straight white boy gets called to go out and have adventures. And that doesn't mean those stories are bad. It doesn't mean those stories should disappear or that those stories shouldn't be read anymore. But maybe it means that's not where my voice needs to go right now. And so, yeah, that's the Wayward Children series for me is just thank you, universe. I really appreciate it. I'm not taking you for granted. Well, I've I've had so many people like they just are like love this series. Um, And actually, uh, one of the questions that came in is from Megan and she was she said, can you please ask her about the books in the Wayward Children? These books specifically, Every Heart a Doorway, are so important to me for the representation of quiet characters. And she's like, you know, I want to, I would love to know what inspired her to write it. And um, especially the explicit connection to Narnia that one of the characters make. But you obviously were saying just, you know, reflections on children and, and approaching it in different ways than we, than our, what is, has been presented before. I mean, the Narnia thing uh, was less of a connection and more of the character being snide. Cause, cause there is a bit where somebody comments on Narnia and one of the characters goes, that wasn't a real adventure. That was Christian propaganda. Because the Susan problem bothers me. I think the Susan problem bothers most girls who didn't necessarily realize that Narnia was Christian propaganda when we were reading it at the age of nine. Yes. And just were suddenly getting told, hey, if you grow up to be what all of society is telling you you have to be, and that you that you are also being told you will not have a choice about. And, you know, now I know you do have a choice. And there is no wrong way to be a girl. But when I was nine... The messaging of, oh, no, dear, you're going to grow up and you're going to want that husband and you're going to want those babies was very, very strong. So I thought that Susan had no choice. Mm. I thought that 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 kind of womanhood was like being a butterfly. You just woke up one day and your nails had changed colors, which, by the way, would be so much easier and less expensive than what we actually go through. So for me, the, the the quip in the book about that was an adventure that was that was Christian propaganda was not ooh Christianity bad. It was ooh lying to children and pretending that your Bible story is a ripping fairy tale adventure is kind of shitty. Mm. My rule with the Wayward Children books is that anytime someone tells me they never get to t- see themselves in fiction, and when I say tells me, I mean actually tells me because I've talked about having this this kind of standard before and this occasionally gets people uh, who think they're being cute to go oh yeah well I'm actually from Mars and I never get to see myself in fiction so you have to put my put me in fiction like well dude there are Martians in lots of fiction but when someone seriously tells me I never get to see myself I'm not in those kinds of stories they're not for me I make it a rule to put them in as quickly as possible, which is why we've had the romantic lead who is not just chubby. She is fat. She is drawn fat. She is described fat. She is at minimum a size 24 by American standards and probably a little bit bigger than that. And she is the most beautiful woman in the world because fat girls don't ever get to be the romantic lead. Yeah. It's why we have the the ace lead. It's why we have the trans boy who is extremely important at his school and is doing just a huge amount to make sure that things are continuing to ru- to run smoothly as the series goes on. And it's cuz if you don't get to see yourself in fiction, no one else gets to see you either. 
Uh, it's just, it's so important to me. Uh, but as for the inspiration, I wrote a song a while ago, which was the title song of one of my albums, because I, I do filk music, which is the folk music of science fiction and fantasy. Very cool. It was the title song of one of my albums. Entertainingly enough, at least to me, uh, that album got nominated for a Hugo Award in the Best Related Works categories. It was the first time a filk album had been on the Hugo ballot in well over a decade, which was amazing. Uh, I did not win, but I had a nice time and was very, very honored to be nominated. And the song is called Wicked Girls. And it's from the perspective of all of these girls who were in portal fantasy when I was a kid. So the, the first verse is, Wendy played fair and she played by the rules that they gave her. They say she grew up and grew old. Peter Pan couldn't save her. They say she went home and she never looked back, got her feet on the ground, got her life on its track. She's the patron saint priestess of all the lost girls who got found. And she once had her head in the clouds, but she died on the ground. And um, so Wayward Children is, is kind of a not infringing on anyone's copyright way of novelizing that song, which is also very important to a lot of people. Yeah. And was was also partially inspired by Lee Harris, who is my editor at Tor.com, called me up and said, I would like you to write us a novella and I would like to not pay you. And I went, well, that's an interesting approach. Uh, how, how's that going to work? And he explained that, that at the time, and I'm not sure if they're still doing this, Tor.com, they were just getting started as a publisher. And so yeah. they were experimenting with a different royalty structure than most of traditional publishing. So if you didn't take an advance, you could get a higher royalty rate. And I, I am not always good at, at risk assessment, which is why I have an agent. She works hard for the money. She really does and spends a lot of time going, no, Sean, and you can't do that. Um, <laughs> but what I heard was, we're not paying you, so we can't tell you what to do. And I asked... Is my interpretation here correct? You're not paying me, so you can't tell me what to do. And Lee, who could, he's, he's a very clever man, could kind of sense that he had me on the hook there with, yes, that's right. Uh, we're not going to tell you what to do. Uh, just, just write us a novella. What will you do? And I said, I'm going to write a boarding school about kids in the aftermath of portal fantasies. And Lee went, that's not marketable at all. Go ahead. But that's kind of where it came from, was a combination of wanting to novelize a song I had written, wanting to give people a chance to see themselves in these stories that were so important to me, and being a brat when my editor said I wasn't going to get paid. I just, I want to thank you for chatting with me. I'm, like I said, going back to the Toby books, I'm like obsessed with the series. I'm so glad I am invested. I'm, this book was, I honestly think the best one yet. I really do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Because it, it does have the big twist that we have done so well at not revealing. Go team us. I know. But we've we've wet appetites, I hope, because I'm serious, guys. It's so freaking good. I've I've been waiting for this for so long. And so there's just this element of like, oh, come on, come on, screaming. People are gonna be like, wait, what? And like just getting all these messages from people going, Holy crap, this is real. It'll be magical. It's a, it was a joy to read and I'm so looking forward to fans getting to experience it as well. And thank you for chatting with me about it. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks for listening guys. And we'll be back soon with another episode. And uh, this is Lauren and Shannon. Oh, wait, I have to say open roads. Don't I? You do open roads and kind fires. Open roads, Shannon. Open roads. Mm-hmm.